A very good morning. It's been a long time since we've been here. <laughs> it feels weird. <laughs> but thankfully for this chance for us to open God's Word together and to read from the Bible and to learn from the Bible what He wants to say to us. Before I begin, allow me to open us in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace. That's by grace we can even open your Word, kept intact for us, so that you would speak to us, you would shape us into your image. So we ask that we have a blessed time of reading and listening to your word. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So just a few weeks back, um, it's the first week of school. And for my family, I have a girl going to primary three and a son into primary one. So my, primary, my son going to primary one, he has to learn one very important skill to survive in primary school, and that is how to buy food from the canteen. And his older sister has been telling him of all the horror stories about the school canteen store operators um, because sometimes they will take money from the young children, but they will not return them the change. So for example, if you order the rice, egg and vegetable dish, it's one thirty, and then if you give them $1.50, the store owner will not return you your 20 cents. And so on the day that my son ordered food for the very first time in his life, he came home. He was so excited and he announced to all of us that the auntie did not give him back any change. So you can imagine within me, there's a sense of injustice that's growing. I mean, why do these canteen aunties exploit these little children? Just for 20 cents, right? Where is the sense of morality? And then my son, he shouted even louder and he gave her the details. He said, I gave her exactly $1.30, the correct amount, but the auntie did not give me back any change. <laughs> Only then did I realise that my son did not fully understand the concept of money. He thought that every time you give money, you should get back a change. Yeah. You see, when we don't understand something fully, Sometimes we end up with a funny situation. However, my friends, there are things in life that we need to understand fully because the consequences can be fatal and eternal. So what I'm referring to, I'm referring to the concept of God's grace. In my discussions with Singaporeans, sometimes as I take taxi, or sometimes when I talk to non-Christians who come to church, or sometimes even in Christians, we discuss about Jesus and the grace of God. And Singaporeans usually have two misconceptions about grace. The first one is that if Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for all of my sins, does that mean that from now on I can live my life any way I want to? I don't have to repent and I'll always be forgiven. That is number one. Misconception number two. Because God is kind and gracious, and somehow if I have enough faith, He will surely bless me with everything that I want. And through Jesus, I have the strength to do all things, to get whatever I desire. For example, to become a millionaire. See, the misconception is that through grace, I can live life however I want. And the second misconception is that through grace, I can get whatever I want. 
And whether it's the first one or the second one, there's always a fine print that as long as you give 10% of your income to church, you will get what you want. And if this indeed, this is what many Singaporeans think about Christianity, it is what they think about grace, then it is tragic. Because the Bible gives us a very different picture of what God's grace is all about. And today, I hope that as we read from the Bible, we can have a clearer understanding of grace because a misunderstanding can lead us to a greater consequences in this life and if next. So you see, in the Bible, grace is used predominantly in the idea of salvation. And so when we talk about salvation, we need to be very clear about the following concepts. And the first one is here on the slide. The first concept is, what are we saved from? The second one is, how are we saved? And the third, what are we saved for? And so, what are we saved from? Let us turn to today's Bible passage from verse 1. It says here, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Here, the Apostle Paul wrote these verses to explain from God's point of view that we are walking dead, that we are zombies, still alive and kicking, but dead in our soul. We are half humans from God's perspective because we've lost the image of God in us that was given to us. And because we are made in God's image, we all have an inkling of what is right and wrong, even when we are a little child. So as a parent of young children, I witness with my very own eyes that there's no need to teach a child how to lie, because the child will always know how to cover up for his mistakes. There's no need to teach a child how to be selfish. In fact, we spend most of our waking hours to tell the child how to share because they tend to miss the mark. And there will always be the occasional conflict, the tears, the finger pointing, and I'm talking not just about the children, but also the parents. So he says here, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. It means that we have all missed the mark of what we know that we're supposed to do because God has given His image in us. And so all of us, despite knowing what is right and wrong, we have lost our ability to do what is right. So we ask the question, what causes us to be dead in our transgressions and sins? If you rewind back time in the late 20th century, the common theory is that it is your parents that cause you to sin. You are who you are today because of your upbringing. If I'm a criminal, it's my parents' fault. And in the 21st century now, as we come to this time, you won't read this anymore in the papers. What you read in the 21st century is that the main determinants of your behaviour and your faults lies in your chemical imbalances and your hormonal influences. In other words, we move on from blaming our family we were born into to blaming our genes that we are born into. We say, we have done nothing wrong because I am born this way. What does the Bible say about this? In verse 2, it says, In which you used to live 
when you follow the ways of the world. The Bible affirms that the people we hang around with, including our parents, have a profound influence on us. And today we have digitized these influences through social media, allowing the feeds from social media to tell us what is cool and what to buy. So one day my children came home from their grandparents' house, just next door to mine, and they came home after watching the whole day of TV, and then they started singing and dancing to the jingle. This is what they said, Shopee, Shopee, 11, 11. Then I know they spent a whole afternoon watching TV, being flooded with all the advertisements. And then I went downstairs to my block's recycling bin. It's always completely filled to the brim, onto the floor with empty boxes. And yours truly, myself, I contributed at least one box. <laughs> See, we are more than just willing to tell us what to buy, let them tell us what to buy. But these social media, you can't underestimate their power as they tell us the alternative views on what is right and what is wrong, how we can live our lives however we want. And the Bible traces this influence to its source. It says, And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The spirit that leads the world to disobedience is none other than Satan himself, the spirit of the kingdom of the air. And the spirit of our times, the zeitgeist, it bombards us with this motto, you can live life however you want. You don't have to follow what the Bible says about life purposes, about morality, and about sexuality. You can do and choose anything you want. It is because Satan himself lives only for himself, for his glory, and he wants the world to follow him in his disobedience. But ultimately, although the Bible identifies the source of these devilish influences, that it starts with the world, and the world comes from his influence, ultimately, the buck stops here with us. We are still at fault. In verse 3, the Bible says, All of us also lived among them at one point, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. What this means is this in simple English. A moment a desire arose in your mind, you cannot help it, but you must somehow act out to experience the pleasure you have already imagined. And so from a thought, it becomes an action, it becomes an experience of pleasure in full bloom to gratify the cravings of our flesh. It's like when I'm jogging, trying to be healthy, I run past the bus stop with a KFC advertisement, I want to eat fried chicken. I cannot stop myself. And although the world and the devil has great influence over us, it is only because of our sinful nature that is broken and corrupted that we are drawn to these natures and the deeds that are wrong. All it takes is inception. Put one small idea, a sinful idea, into your mind through a scene in a movie, through a book, or even a picture. And it stays there in your mind. 
And then all you need to do is keep watering it with the constant influence of the world. And then the idea will grow up full grown and bear fruit of sinful desire. And then we'll be powerless to say no, to stop ourselves from acting it out. That's what human nature is all about. And this is the verse that, just, that explains why we have a multi-billion dollar advertisement industry. At this point, it is important to note that God did not create us as imperfect beings prone to sin. No, my friends, when God created mankind, He made us pure. But Adam and Eve listened to Satan. He chose to sin against God to live life however they want. And then their nature was changed. It became sinful. And then ever since, all children from Adam and Eve were born sinful. The world says, I've done nothing wrong because I'm born this way. The Bible says, I can do nothing right because I'm born this way. You see, my friends, dead in our sins is the appropriate description. We all could be wandering around the world before COVID, dressed in our best fashion, taking selfies in the best places, and carrying the best gadgets. And this is what the world calls life. But the Bible declares this, death. Because when we rebel against our God, the giver of life, the further we walk away from life, the nearer we walk towards death. The ESV version tells us that we are children of wrath. And that is our status, our identity, that because we are now under God's anger, the final destination is always death. And because the wages of our sin is death. Dead in our sins, every step you take towards doing what you want brings you one step closer to your death. All of us also live among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And the rest, we are by nature deserving of wrath. Let me tell you a story, and this is real. There was a young woman named Jade, and she shared that when she was four, she was, since five, sorry, since she was five years old, she was sexually abused. Continued until she was 12. And all this torment made her hate her body. And so she tried all her best to separate herself from her own body. And one way to do so was through starving to punish her body, to purify it, to make it disappear. And so she started being anorexic. And when she has a difficulty uh, eating food, she refuses food. And by the time she was 14, only 14 years old, she started a website with thousands of followers. And the webpage she started declares, anorexia is a lifestyle, not a disease. See, the internet allows young girls as young as 10, 12, 14 to be anonymous and yet to find a like-minded group to encourage one another to lose more weight. And what we call these websites is ProAnna. So through these ProAnna websites, they discover tips to lose weight. And their common goal is always to be thinner than what they already are. 
and they take inspirations from pictures of thin actresses, stars, and singers. And they don't heed the warnings online about this path of self-destruction. What they do is, is they convince themselves by saying that our way is not the way of the weak. In fact, we are the strong ones. If we completely tap into the potential of our minds to lose weight, we could change the world. We are the ones who could rule the world. And that's how they convince themselves. But we know it's a futile attempt to control life as they lose life literally, as they lose their teeth, as the acid destroys their throats. A life that's clearly out of control. They attempt to control their weight. Why? So that they can control you, the world, how you view them. And hopefully when people view them positively, they can accept themselves. And one will describe, if you eat, then you sin. If you dislike yourself, you feel anxiety. And if you meet your weight goals, if you lose weight, you feel clean. It's interesting they use religious terms in this process. But little known to them, actually there are men posing as little girls to enter these websites. Men posing as young girls to continue to motivate these girls to lose weight. And then ask these girls to take pictures of themselves as they lose weight. And then they will take these photos and post it and sell it to online pornography websites. So these men, instead of coming in to save the girls, they produce pornography. They encourage the girls to stay on the path of self-destruction, literally killing themselves through this mental illness. And as we hear such stories, there should be wrath rising within us. When we learn of their sin, we tell ourselves that this man deserves to be punished. If it's your own daughter who's been exploited, you'll be very angry. So how much more, my friends, will the holy God be angry against sin? But the problem is that, as the Bible explained, all of us, all of us have sinned. Verse 3, all of us have lived among the disobedient at one time. And so all of us deserve God's wrath. And this is what makes us uncomfortable about what the Bible says about mankind. Because the only difference between you and me, between me and the convicted criminal, is that I have not yet been caught by human authorities for the sins I've committed, whether they're online or offline. You see, in life, if you're unlucky, you get caught. But if you're lucky, you become a pastor. See, friends, we are all sinful whether we are online or offline. We are all dead in our sins. But fortunately for us, God did not leave us on this path of self-destruction. He did not leave us in this state of being under His wrath. You see, as the ESV calls us children of wrath, it's precisely we are this, God's children. And any parents here in this room will tell you that the more you love your children, the more you'll be angry against them when they sin. Because the flip side of the same coin 
the more you care about a person and the more the person sins against you, the more angry you shall be. So God's great anger, His wrath, has actually another dimension. His great love for us. Which is why in verses 4 to 5, it speaks of God's love for us. It says here, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. Once more, the Bible emphasized that our default state is that we are dead in our transgressions. Left to our own devices, we will imagine all sorts of ways to save ourselves. But these ways are futile. They are useless. And we lose control about our lives. Then we feel worse about ourselves. And then we want to make ourselves clean by trying harder and harder again. And in the end, we sin and we make ourselves dirty. And so in this vicious circle, we are dead. But because of His great love for us, God still made us alive with Jesus Christ. He did not wait for us to be holy first to save us. He knew that we could never save ourselves. He made us alive even when we are sinful when we are unclean, when we are dead. This, my friends, is a biblical definition of grace. It says here, verse 5b, it is by grace you have been saved. We who are unable to save ourselves, we who deserve to be condemned, are somehow miraculously made alive to obey God now, to be changed in our human nature to, from sinfulness to obedience. And to order to save us, in order to save us, what did God have to do? What He did is that He went to the cross Himself as a scapegoat to die the painful death for our sins. We all know this by now. And those who trust in His death on the cross, that the cross is sufficient, it's enough to take away all your sins, you'll be given a new gift, a gift of God's righteousness. So Jesus takes our sin away and He gives us our righteousness, His righteousness. There's an exchange. It's a great exchange. And this is what is written in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, God made Him, Jesus, who had no sin to become sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And God did not stop there in verse 6 to 7. It says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace, expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So to fully appreciate these verses, we actually have a similar one in chapter 1. And what we can do is we can compare the two. So if we compare the two, I hope you can still see it, over here, it says, firstly, we are people saved by God because of His great mercy. We have an inheritance of mercy from God, richly blessed, not with material goods, not with physical health, but with grace. And then this mercy and grace, you compare between the two chapters, is that it made us alive. It raises us from the dead, to, from disobedience to obedience. It's the same amazing power that Jesus was risen from the dead. 
If you try to raise someone from the dead, that is the power required to raise us from disobedience to obedience. And not only that, we are actually now seated. We are given a new status. No longer children of wrath, we are now sitting with Jesus in the heavenly realms. It means our status has been changed. We are co-ruling with Jesus. We are co-heirs, which means that not that we have become like God, we can determine the fate of the world, but now when we pray through Jesus, we can influence the world, we can know that our prayers are heard, and that we can be saved from Satan's influence over us. There's no more excuse for the one who is in Christ that you can stand firm and reject the influence of Satan and say no to sin. This is a change of status from condemnation to coronation. I remember a time when I was serving in national service as a recruit. So I, half of the crowd here probably know. Now we have a telltale hairstyle, right? Or no style. And our uniforms with no rank. So we betray our status as recruits. And in the recruits, in the army camp, we'll be shouted at, we'll be insulted, we'll be punished. And even when we leave the camp, when we left the camp, when people saw us on the streets, they will mock us. So once I was booked out with my uniform, and a group of men saw me, and they started singing, Today is my book out day, do da, do da. And then everywhere I went, I was the lowest life form, as long as I put on that uniform. Until the day I became an officer cadet. This time around, wow, I booked in a camp in a long sleeve white shirt. And that was a change. Suddenly, the soldiers at the guardhouse, they greeted me with smiles. It's as if I'm entering no longer army camp, but I was walking into my condominium. <laughs> but unfortunately for me, within two weeks, I caught pneumonia, and then I was out of course, no longer the officer. And then I had to book out of my camp in my two days, my book out day, recruit <laughs> uniform. And the soldiers at the guardhouse, the same guys, they were back at being rude to me and treated me like dirt, the lowest life form. Why am I sharing this? See, when God changed our status in life through the sacrifice of His own precious Son on the cross, it is forever. It says here, in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace, and not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Our change of status, friends, by grace, is not just for this life. It's not temporary. It is also for the age to come. It is certified, guaranteed, chopped and stamped. It's double confirmed. Confirmed for now and confirmed forever and ever. From, from condemnation to coronation, from a prisoner to sin, now to a co-ruler with Christ, for eternity, all your shame has been taken away, online or offline. No one can condemn you anymore, not now, not ever, online or offline. No one can take the status away from you. Not because you are good enough, 
but because God loves you enough. Let this sink in for a minute. If this incomparable grace at the heavy price of dying on a cross doesn't blow your mind, then nothing else ever will. Let us continue. It says here, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So we ask ourselves, through faith, why faith? What is faith? You see, faith is a concept. The verb, the action, is trust. When the Bible says we are saved by grace through faith, it means that now Jesus has done everything needed to save us when you couldn't do anything. And all you need to know to do now is to trust that he has done everything to save you on the cross. No longer do you trust in anything else to save you, not your achievements to make you clean. No longer do we trust anyone else to save you or any other methods. You trust wholly in Jesus. That's what it means to have faith. And so grace means we are sinners, yet God saves us. Faith means we only need to trust in God's act of saving us to make us saints. So to be saved by grace through faith, which means that we are now both, both sinners and saints at the same time. Sinner because you recognize that your default broken state, you'll be powerless, you can never be God. Saint because we have received this free gift of righteousness by faith, by trusting to change your status. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. So when the first time I heard this verse, it was when Pastor Chris, he used the Back to Basics materials to share with me. So it's very nostalgic for me to study this passage again. And verse 9 blew my mind completely, not by works so that no one can boast. You see, in my previous religious practice, I used spiritual techniques to control my thoughts or to restrain my sinful carnal nature and to cleanse myself of my past deeds. I could control my thoughts as long as I tried. And then we practiced together. But sometimes I realized that I could control my thoughts a few seconds longer than the person next to me because he started moving, you see? And then I could not help at the moment a sense of pride rising within me that somehow I'm slightly better even for a few seconds than my friend over there, just slightly. The humility that I tried so hard to cultivate proved to be so elusive. The harder I tried, the less humble I become. But when we are saved by grace, not by our own works of spiritual achievements, then I have nothing to boast. So friends, as Christians, there's nothing we can ever boast in our lives except of God's saving grace through Jesus Christ. And today, if you find that there's still something as a Christian that you can boast in, whether it's your achievement or your experiences, 
whether it's an iPhone 12 or because my friend is carrying iPhone 11, whether your education or your possession, whether it's your children or your grandchildren, or even it's your spouse, then perhaps the Bible passage warns us today that we're in danger of forgetting the grace that God has given us. If we are so proud of our children because the way we bring them up, maybe your children is being abused because it's you imposing your works of salvation on them. Same for our spouses, same for our church friends and our colleagues. But when we remain in this grace, when we stop trying to save ourselves, a true peace will finally enter into our lives. So I was reading an old book called Shoes Too Big. It's recorded for us some of the most beautiful stories of God's grace through the prison ministry of Mr. Henry Koo, the late Henry Koo, who was the prison chaplain and passed away in 2006. Allow me to quote one story for us. It says that two girls from Hong Kong, in those days, they were arrested in Singapore for drug trafficking. And unfortunately, they were carrying enough drugs to be given the death sentence. So one of them, given a name Abigail in the book, she came from a dysfunctional family. Her parents divorced when she was a young girl, and so she was cared for by her grandmother. And then at her home, she was ill-treated by her uncles and her cousins. And she was only 14. At 14 years old, she ran away from home. And she cohabited with a man. And that man did not save her. He used her for ill-gotten gains. And so by the time she reached 18, four years later, she ran away again, yet to another man. And this time around, the second man sent her to Thailand to smuggle drugs. But she was caught in Changi Airport. And in prison in Singapore, a Christian counsellor from Hong Kong ministered to her. And for the first time in her life, she experienced the love of God. That despite all that she has done, whether she was forced to do or whether she did it willingly, all her guilt, all her shame was taken away at the cross of Jesus. She knew God's deep love for her. And so she accepted Jesus as a Lord and Saviour. And overwhelmed by the good news of Jesus, even on death row, waiting to die, she eagerly shed her faith and led four other prisoners to faith. And the final days in prison, her parents came together and flew to Singapore to visit her. When they saw her, she did not blame them. She did not blame her upbringing for the situation that she was in. Instead, she continued to share with her parents the love of God and urged them to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. Her parents broke down and cried, but they couldn't help but notice there was a great peace in their daughter. On the night of her execution, together with the Hong Kong counsellor and the chaplain Henry Koo, Abigail sang the chorus from a hymn, and this is what she sang. And I shall see thee face to face. Tell the story safe by grace. And I shall see thee face to face. And I tell the story saved by grace. 
filled with the joy of the Lord, Abigail walked up to the execution chamber with a deep, unshakable peace of God. Friends, we have to ask ourselves, when we try to save ourselves by our own works, there will be no peace. Because we might do well today, but one day we will always fail again. And that is our greatest fear. But when we humbly come before God and receive the gift of grace, His gift of righteousness, then there will be peace. Peace that no one can rob from you because your salvation is so secure, it is now guarded for you in heaven. It's no longer dependent on your performances nor life circumstances. So this brings us back to the beginning of the sermon where I mentioned earlier the two false understandings of God's grace. The first misunderstanding is that through grace, I can live however I want. And this is technically what we call the antinomianism or anti-law. It says here, I can do whatever I want, no law, and the thing is believe is all you need is faith and no need for works of repentance. This view does not realize that what we have been saved from. This view allows you to continue in your path of self-destruction. And the second misunderstanding is that through grace, I can get whatever I want. And that's what is called the legalism. Grace is not enough. I need to do some tactics, some techniques that can untwist God to give me what I want. You know, I remember I was a young Christian. I was advised, they don't like your language. You want to pray for a spouse? At the time I wasn't married yet. You have to be very specific in your prayer. Because my friend, when she prayed for her husband, she prayed for the height, prayed for the income. But then when he married her, she realized that his year is a bit not very nice, the year. Because she forgot to pray about the years. <laughs> you know, this is what you call spiritual techniques of works that you try to untwist God. And it's very sad because it makes God sound less generous than He really is. And somehow, we need to do something that to manipulate Him, to force Him to bless us. And sometimes it can be something as subtle as this, that I've served God so many years. Why did He still allow me to suffer so much? Why am I retrenched during pandemic and not my friends as a non-believer? Or maybe because I didn't pray hard enough for my father or for my mother. Maybe that's why he or she is suffering. Not good enough. That's why I can't get what I want. It's all this very subtle thinking that creeps into our life to rob us of God's grace. Actually, they are both sides of the same coin. They both stem from a misunderstanding of grace and cause us to have a very low view of God. It says that somehow you don't have to repent anymore. That's antinomian. It also says that somehow, if you have certain spiritual techniques, like having more faith, like speaking the right words, you can create a reality around you that you want. You speak, and there was evening, and there was morning. This wrong view makes you think that you are God. And the danger of such wrong views is that they blind you from seeing the true grace of God and that we can never be able to experience the true grace nor the true peace because you're still trying to save yourselves. They create a false expectations in life that you deserve better when you end up with depression, when you face reality. 
And worse, a wrong view of grace might even mean that we might not even be saved at all. So instead, my friends, what must we do? We must learn from prisoners on death row because our sins have also led us to death, a death sentence. We need to see ourselves as sinful people, undeserving of God's grace, but yet receive it. And that through Christ, our status is now transformed by faith. And that with thanksgiving, we no longer live for ourselves. We no longer live for whatever I want to do, but whatever He wants us to do. And God doesn't want your 10% of your income. He wants 100% of your life. The biblical view is this. We are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by faith for works, for works of repentance. Which is why verse 10 says, We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So what are these good works, we ask? It is not what we do all the time. It is about how we do it now and why we do it. The good works stem from a change in the mindset that we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for the one who died for us and who rose again from the dead. So my wife, she was trained as an ESL teacher, English as a second language. And then recently we had a conversation about foreign students that she had. And she, see, she said that the foreign students in their respective home countries, they have learned English since young. They know a lot of grammatical rules. And so during classes when my wife was teaching them, they were not interested in the lessons. But when they were asked to speak or to write, no one could understand them. This is because all their lives they have learned English as a subject in school, but they have never learned English as a language. What they truly need is to practice speaking the language outside of the classroom to make the language part of their lives. They need to love using the language. It is not enough to learn it as a subject. Similarly for us, there's always a danger that we know the biblical concept of grace very well, that I'm preaching to the choir, but we may only know it as a subject and not as part of our lives. What we need is to fall in love with grace again and to love walking in it again. And that's what God did for me the whole of last year. You see, when a circuit breaker started, I belonged to the category of people who basically was paid but with no work to do. All my plans were thrown out of the window and in a few months I felt very uneasy, to say the least. A low-grade anxiety followed me through the days. I couldn't get rid of it. And then in November, as God opened an opportunity to serve the migrant workers, I was part of a team to deal with the dormitory and the multiple government agencies to create a ministry platform to serve the people. And then I was working day and night, non-stop. And guess what? I was anxious too. And there were times I couldn't sleep. I woke up at 3 a.m. And sometimes my wife told me she heard me talk in my sleep that I was still giving orders with my eyes closed. So no work, I was anxious. 
With work, I was also anxious. So what is the problem? Clearly, the problem lies not in my work, but with me. But why was I anxious? Suddenly, God was telling me I could be using church ministry to change how people view me, to use affirmation from others to help me to accept myself. I'm no different from a young girl suffering from anorexia. That despite understanding grace, any failure for me was unthinkable. I was using my work as works to save myself. I was preaching grace, but I was not walking in it. What my heart needed to learn all over again was to rest in God's grace, to do the work empowered by His grace. No works of mine can ever save me or make my life more meaningful or more fruitful. Instead, I must remain in Him and rejoice in everything He has given me. I needed faith, true faith, to trust in the God that He will see me through day by day by grace, whether there's work or no work, whether I fail or whether I succeed. And despite how difficult it was during the circuit breaker, I give thanks for it. Why? Because almost every day, I had to help my daughter do her online home-based learning. And each day in the afternoon, we had to turn on and watch some YouTube dance videos for her PE lessons, her physical education class. So you can imagine me, you know, skinny Teochew man with curly hair, trying to do Zumba with my children in front of my computer. I mean, it wasn't a good sight, but it was a good time. It was a good memory. Because each day, we have to force ourselves to bring the children to get out of the house, just to play outside the corridor or go to the parks. That's all we could do. And every day, I never had so much time with my children. It was a time given to me and my family by God's grace. I needed to embrace God's grace all over again, to see each day as a bonus for me, like how death row prisoners see each day before the execution. I need to wake up each day with thanksgiving to embrace the good works that He has prepared for me to do in advance. Not the works that I prepared for myself, but the works that He prepared for me. Whether it's serving my family, whether it's serving my church, or whether it's just letting my hair down. And then whatever fruit that I bear eventually, I know it's no longer from me, but it's from God, by grace, so that no one can boast. This is the true Christian life, my friends. This is the great grace-filled life. The one who started me on this path will see me through to the end. There's no need for a work plan for the whole life. One day at a time is enough. Let me end by quoting my Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And this is what he said. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Rest from trying to save yourself. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, not by works, so that no one 
can boast. Let us go to God in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we help us to open the eyes of our hearts once more to see the incomparable riches of grace and mercy that you have given us, changing our status as children of wrath to co-heirs with your Son, Jesus Christ. So may we lay down our works and trust in your work and walk in the good works that you have prepared for us to do. In your Son, Jesus' most precious name we pray. Amen.